And then you come and you find this community and you're all exploring all of this stuff all at the same time, but you're young and good looking and there's heavy trance music playing and there's drugs and leather and low lighting. And for the first time, you're handsome. First time in your life. And you still can't find your body, but what you do find is other women's bodies. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In this week's episode, we're really excited to chat to Joelle Taylor. Joelle is an award-winning poet and author who prior to the pandemic completed a world tour with her collection Songs My Enemy Taught Me. She founded Slambassadors, the UK National Youth Poetry Slam Championships, as well as the international spoken word project Borderlines. She is widely anthologised, the author of four collections of poetry, and is currently completing her debut collection of interconnecting short stories, The Night Alphabet. Her new poetry collection, Kunto and Othered Poems, was published in June 2021, and is the subject of the Radio 4 arts documentary, Butch. Kunto won the T.S. Eliot Prize in 2021, the Polari Prize in 2022, and was named by The Telegraph, The New Statesman, The White Review and Times Literary Supplement as one of the best poetry books of 2021. She has received a Changemaker Award from the South Bank Centre, a Fellowship of the RSA and her poem Valentine was highly commended in the Forward Prize. She is co-curator and host of Outspoken Live, the UK's premier poetry and music club, currently resident at the South Bank Centre. She is the commissioning editor at Outspoken Press. Hi Joelle, thanks so much for coming on Tender Buttons. It's an absolute pleasure, thanks for inviting me. We were wondering if you could start with a reading from Kunto. Of course, this is uh, part of the long sequence of seven cantos that makes up the original poem Kunto. Round two. The body as protest. Born backward, bright back and wide, skin rolling, cigarettes and shirt sleeves, skyline chin. Levi 501's curled up to cup, cuff, lip, the same. White t-shirt that they may project themselves on you. Tsunami quiff, a shadow rising above the dreaming town. And black boots whose roots spread, tangle through the centre of the earth. You don't wear makeup to prove you have not made anything up. This is your face. Your father's friends gave it to you one Christmas Eve, 1973. You unwrapped it beneath a decorated tree from which the rest of your family hung. They sipped cocktails as you slowly disappeared, swaying gently to the wail of celebration, that harbinger of party. You got your first suit out of the thick silence when you... Enter a room. They call you 
Butch. The name derived from Butch Cassidy. You are the descendant of outlaws. Irony incarnate. Woman butchered, cut into select meats. Middle distance stare. Breast, shoulder, wild tongue. They fear you. Boy, boy, dyke. Diesel female sodomite. Lady faggot bulldyke. Bulldagger queer pervert. Gold star silverback stud invert. Kiki shemale drag drone. Baby butch tomboy. Stone. But if you are a stone, you are a chip off the mountain. And you join an avalanche of wrong walking women. Shaven heads like tumbling rocks. You keep them close they are. Rosary. On the dance floor, we are tidal. Heckle the night. We bat nods between us, handshakes, pull us out of currents, landed and breathless. We are untamed, a wilderness of women. We are waste ground. What a waste, love. Nothing grows on us, sterile and barren and unuseful female, empty as church pews. The wind rattles its Fists inside our wounds. Come on then, snake boy. Come now, heretic healer. Where are the maths that solve us? How do we fit into your algae, bra, your binary code? Our bodies are political placards. We dance as demonstration of independence, we revolution in the living room. We uprising in the public toilets, insurgency in the suburbs. Fear is a girl backing into her face. Is it? We're not camping off to be your best friend. Our closet, a strata of fossilised clothes, girl pelt. Is it not funny enough for your talk show, bruv? Is it that a woman without makeup is a woman without a face? How were we to know that when we were cleansing, we were erasing our whole existence? Thank you. Wow, it's brilliant to hear that in space from your voice because we've been obviously looking at the page a lot, researching this, but it, it's the transformation of that hearing it uh, aloud. And I wondered, a place to start is thinking about the translation between performance, the stage and the page, because that's mm. something that I think is so impressive in this collection. Because I know a lot of them have had, a lot of the poems have had life on the stage first, potentially. But yeah. I wondered about those translations. Yes. Well, I mean, it's really interesting to me you call it translations because that's exactly what I referred to it as when I was going through the process. So originally, um, the set of the seven cantos, which became known as cantos, a joke, basically, between me and Anthony and Axaguru, um, it, it came out of a commission from Apples and Snakes, who are a big spoken word literary agency, celebrate their 35-year anniversary. And the theme I was given was protest. And so I knew, well, actually, when I wrote it, I didn't really understand that it was going to be spoken word. Not really. Um, I thought I'd be standing in the corner of a room speaking very passionately. They asked, they told me that I was going to be on stage and repeat it four times, back to back. 
Um, but when I got to London, um, they'd got a whole, like, amazing director, Rob Watt, and a big um, stage designer, Beth Wells, and a big team. And it became this huge thing. Um, where they they put it inside a boxing ring. They, that was the world they saw of Kanto. It was a boxing ring roped off with barbed wire. And I hadn't envisaged that at all. That's in, entirely their world that they created. And then the, the Kanto stopped being one, two three, four, as you normally would, you know, mark them or in some sort of way like that. And and were kind of more fitted to the language of, of the physical performance of it. And it became very physical very quickly as I was, you know, I had to learn <laughs> like a couple of days how to box and, and you know, and, just, and learn a piece that was of the body, you know, that had come off the body. Um, so there was an amazing, I think, Certainly with the, the writing, I focus on this interaction between the body and the, and the text all the time, you know. And you can say that that's the roots of most spoken word artists. We get on stage and we, we write something, but we're manipulating the air itself. The body's finishing whatever script you've got. So then lockdown happened anyway. And um, just before lockdown happened, I did a big performance of it at, um, in Rich Mix and Saki Books had organised this performance and I, I went on. And by the time I got off stage, they'd offered me a book deal. And just before that, I'd been offered a deal to create it into a full kind of play. <clears throat> so <clears throat> my head was thoroughly on the stage play um, when I suddenly get this amazing opportunity to write a book. And um, it's actually a lot easier to write a book because you don't have to... <clears throat> you know, it's difficult in other ways, but you don't have to keep filtering through people from you know and and sort of having this it's, it's not it's not cultural democracy writing it's a fascism it's absolutely the world of one but <clears throat> lockdown happened and I couldn't go out and I couldn't be physical and my that's my work physicality so um there was just me and it, and it meant that all the kind of negotiating I was doing between the two different languages of um books and performance were happening in a very small space, were happening in a piece of A4 paper on my desk in Walthamstow. So it really is, I think, even as writing the book, I was looking forward to the moment when I could get out with it and do my solo show because there is such an important... I write about the body and I'm off the body at the same time. Um, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot because University of East Anglia are taking my archives in. So I've been curating my archives and literally my entire life in different ways I've talked about the same thing, which is um, potentially a little bit dull. But, I mean, my, my aim with Kanto and why I find it hard to share any of the writing, I never sent it anywhere or, you know, any sort of journals, even if they asked, is because um, of trying to find this space, this middle language between performance and... And, and what is written. And I came up with this... I mean, obviously, the scene poems are very clear. And that came about because I write very poetic staging notes, according to the director, Rob Watts. So I was like, well, I'll just carry on then. But I'll, I'll make them even more surreal. Um, but it also comes from the idea of being watched as a dyke. So, you know, it had to have a purpose. It's not just about the stage. It's about that feeling of being narrated. And, and narration was a huge part of the whole book. Yeah, I wondered as well, like, about that sense of which going into the lockdown with, as you say, like, the smaller space of the page 
and yourself as an individual there but so much of the book channels this community I guess like pays homage and things to community spaces that have been lost so I wondered about how that was to like write into that in terms of the community building that the book can capture like how was that process? I mean, I'd originally intended to do a load of different interviews and visit a lot of different archives, but obviously lockdown happened and that limited what I could do. I mean, obviously you got the wide internet. Um, and I did manage to work quite a bit with Kenrick and with um, Bishopsgate Institute. But it meant that they, uh, I just had this moment in Bishopsgate where I was frustrated because I couldn't find what I was looking for in the documents. And then I realised the reason I was frustrated is because I knew what I was looking for because I'd been there and that's how I knew so actually I was your primary witness so it just meant that there was more of an interrogation of the self rather than other people and so you go back into into a memory and it's it it was it's been absolutely I mean I dug up the river do you know what I mean a lot of mud came up a lot of mud and it's been um the most amazing year but also one of the most difficult of my life as well and it's been, you know, revisiting old ghosts um, and some new ghosts as well. Um, the best part of it is just that sense of um, reconnecting with people. And once I got on the road with Conta, I had a couple of astonishing experiences. So I wrote about people that are dead, but I also wrote about people who are simply ghosts because they're not there anymore, you know. And I went and I did this event in Melbourne, Australia thinking, oh, no-one will become, because, you know, why would they? And it sold out, full of lezers of every flavour you can imagine. And then afterwards, in the queue for the book signing, somebody came up and said, all right, how are you doing then? Do you fancy a pint? And it was the barmaid from the Maryville. And she brought all her mates, and, and we all hung out all night, and it was, it was amazing. So we've been in touch ever since keeping in touch and other people have got photos from that time that, that would be really helpful when I'm publishing my memoirs. Um, and then some very close friends of mine got back in touch after many, many years and I went down and I spent a bit of time with them. So so the fictional remembering has created this new community, you know, for me. Um, I guess because many of, you know, obviously there's a, there's a part of the book which is, is mourning um, friends, so it's very sad. But you don't get to mourn something unless it was amazing, unless, you know, um, there was there were more parties than funerals. Um, you know, so um, it's been wonderful going back there and seeing people remember their, their importance. Women remember... We did some mad shit and we got away with it. You know, and um, I'd like the younger LGBT generation to look at the mad shit we did and make it matter. I mean, just take some control, take some control. I'm really interested in what you said earlier about maybe being someone who's had a narrative like told about you or dictated for you, but also being the narrator. And I wonder, is Mm. that something you think about a lot in your work, kind of that? power balance between the person telling the story and the person who's having a particular story maybe told about them? I do. Yeah, I do. I think it's something that as any kind of writer of... or fiction, Well, like any kind of writer, you know, um, particularly as a white writer, you've got to be really mindful of the narratives you tell. 
And because I come from the spoken word community, as you're probably aware, one of the biggest criticisms of us is that we only ever talk about things, the confessional poem, only ever talk about things that we've directly experienced, that we've been through. But I'm also from that generation that, that I think we really need to think about how we tell other people's stories. And it's compelling, you know. Um, my new book, The Night Alphabet, has done something that Songs My Enemy Taught Me tried to do, but failed miserably. Um, well, it didn't fail. It was sort of popular. But, but, it, but I wouldn't do it again. I was trying to do a kind of reportage. Um, so it's the skill of taking a narrative that isn't necessarily your own, but imagining yourself in it and changing the environment, the world. Well, just, this works in fiction. I'm not so sure in poetry. I couldn't ever say I in a poem if something hadn't happened to me, you know? I don't, I'm, but then you don't want to be... This is such an old question and such a, an absolutely integral one. Everyone's going to have a different opinion, you know? Um, so I think it's important to sort of explore other people's narratives but find the connection before you do and check your privilege check yourself you know kit walked kit de wall says never dip your ink in someone else's blood um and part of me agrees with that wholeheartedly but another part is like mm, i guess it's how we stand and how not to say even how we tell the story because i've had some instances recently which have really surprised me you know, I've read, um, I won't go into details, but I read a piece of work I believe was written by a Jamaican person and then a very middle-class white person stood up and read the story and I was really surprised doesn't cover it. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it, I guess, because of the power imbalance, you know. Is there something in that? Because I guess there is such a host of characters in, in the collection, but the way that they we through feels so much there's a real script like quality to some of that and i wondered whether like that it's really messing with the genre in a really exciting way hybrid way does that allow a bit more of that fluidity of the characters moving between you know what i mean like I the think way that so. it feels the theatrical side i i think so and what, what's been most interesting is that i never wrote the stage play in the end because kanto became a became a hit and um, so what I did instead was we took the book Kanto and went through another translation of taking the poetry and making it um, a stage piece. And that, that became, I went on at the Albany a year ago, just as a sort of 40-minute tester, what do you call it, a scratch. Um, it's really interesting, that, that, that process, how things change. But, it, yeah, it does. It gives you a fluidity, which means that, you can drop certain poems to tighten the story. So, like, in the stage play, the narrative's very, very tight. Um, and all the sort of peripheral stuff, the musy stuff, um, that goes because it doesn't serve the story. Theatre's about story and about tension and about what happens in this space of time. In an hour and a half, what can you make happen? Um, and obviously a book is time. It's without time. It's um, or against time in some ways. I was wondering, um, going back to your kind of sound and light cues, so on the page, um, I really loved the way you wrote about them. You have um, like a sound cue, like the sound of a door opening into a chest cavity, uh, lighting, that's the orange of belief. And I was wondering how, when these were staged, were you able to stage those? 
When the steeps... Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Such a good question. Now, let me see. Um, no, what happened was I, I walked onto to, into a derelict snow globe with the old Maryville. It was absolutely deserted. And I'm kind of dusting stuff off the tables, etc., etc. And then I say it, scene one. So I said, Jack, and I played the character Jack Catch. And then as I'm speaking, it's going through the poems, Valentine comes out of the darkness. And then, um, you know, uh, Dudzilli appears and then finally Angel bounds into the room and the four butchers are back to life, the lights start coming on and we're back in time, we're back into that moment, the, the last night in the Maryville. So keeping, this is the interesting thing, the translation, is trying to keep some of the poems exactly as they are. And, you know, the director is, is amazing and he's just like, yeah, we, we don't need to do all that, just say it. And and the hardest bit is they cut bits of the poem that um, don't serve the story. And you're like, mate, cut a whole story, not like, not like a third of it. That's mad. But you have to, you know, it, it goes into another stage where it becomes an, a different, piece, a different piece of work. So you have to go with it. I find it it's interesting you say about um, the director loving your poetic stage directions because that's something I've come across recently with um, theatre going on in Bristol is I've heard a few people who have got who've come from theatre backgrounds but have been working with poets with script writing and stuff who have also loved the freshness of poets writing stage directions it's something that mm. I keep coming across at the moment I think I remember like reading um, Hiroshima Monomore script by Margaret Duras and it was like the stage directions of that just uh, the I guess it's like the film you know mm. directions for, for mood and setting and stuff like absolutely blow me away there's something yeah. really interesting of that in, in in one of my old books there's, there's a whole piece called child star which is about children being groomed but she believes she's at a school for child stars and so the whole script is written in film directions and camera angles and it starts with a bluebird that escapes the disney script we follow it into this space so i think using the language of other things is 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 it's kind of what poetry does amazingly well. You know, for example, there's poems by Leila Longsoldier, what's it called, Whereas, where she uses the American, um, con- is it Bill of Rights? Ooh. But she uses the language that, that has been used to oppress Native American people to criticise that. It's an incredible, so the idea of using legal language to to analyse the legal framework, you know, of or autopsy reports is another one so it makes a lot of sense to try and use do that another thing i was thinking i guess there's something going on there isn't there linked to jess's question around like where the gay the gay the gaze you're expecting in terms of like an oppressive gaze of you know mm. within your collection of of the way that you're read as uh butch but then something that i find that i found really compelling i think it's in omeryville there's a lot of like bodies metamorphosing into things that you don't expect to have a body as such so the, the body's turning into clubs or the body's turning into trees or yeah. this kind of thing so it's like you you think there's something fixed like the the body of that butch person character that's come on but then they keep slipping from that gaze if that makes sense can you talk about like the body metamorphosing in your work yeah i mean i think um it's it's a really it's really interesting going through my archives and trying to find a through line for this for this uh, archive project, 
Um, and it's something that's, I think it's always come, it's always been a part of me. I was sexually abused as a child. And during a period in time, so I'm 55, so during a period in time when children were blamed for it, and certainly little girls were. I don't think anybody even really thought it happened to little boys. You know, um, and it took many, many years to be able to comprehend that. And so as a writer, much of my work was trying to figure that out. So a lot of the work throughout time looks at transformation. So angels' fists are dogs because they, they escape her sometimes, but they're loyal. They're loyal and, so, and she found them, you know, by the side of a road and fed them a saucer of lager and brought them up as her own. I think it's important. I think transformation is a huge part of what it means to be queer. You know, to you're grappling with this fluidity of body. That fluidity of body is is societally imposed and want in one sense. But then the way we respond to it, we own that. So it's both an oppressive and a creative moment. It's contradictions, you know, all the way through. But um yeah, so I think I think it's that the body's in a in a state of movement or in a state of seeking. And also it's just a way of trying to get people to understand how they're, how they're feeling in that moment. Mm. Can you maybe talk a little bit about like the body is club as it appears? Because I guess you talk in the, in the preface about um, the club being about unity. And yes. then there's quite a few moments in the collection where, where like what we deem are like human bodies turn into the club. And I guess there's something, yeah, important going on there between an individual and a collective. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, first of all, in, in all fiction writing, whenever we're talking about a house, we're generally talking about the female body. That's like a, a kind of, what would you call it, a symbol, an archetype of some kind. So I wanted to play around with that idea. But, yeah, the collective we is the most... The, the, think of it this way. Kanto starts in a very depersonalised, disassociated way. You fall, you, you, you. And of course, what it is, is me. I'm talking about me, but I, I can't say it. And that's, that's a huge part of what, what it's about, being falling and missing your body entirely. It's about being outside of the self. So then when you go through this door, like into the Maryville, and you join this collective, the collective itself becomes the body, you know? Which is why an attack on one of us is an attack on all. Because, because we have defined each other through each other in in many ways. You know, it's a very, a very important thing. So, um, I think that's what you're driving at the sense of collectivity, and community. It's very very important. I think the internet has atomized um, one of the most successful civil rights movements, if not the most successful, civil rights movements in the twentieth century, and I wonder why and how and to what purpose. And I was scared when I wrote the book because of this, um, this, this row that's continually raging, you know, on social media. I thought it would come and meet me in, in, the, in, in little bookshops. But um, it's been incredible. My community is not as atomised as they are portrayed to be. You know, there's a, a huge drive at the moment, I think. And I, if you experience that, I imagine so in Bristol, that the LGBT community is doing what we can to find physical spaces again and come together. So, you know, um, 
it's very important this we is is has become a, a difficult word in the 21st century because we're neoliberalist wankers frankly <laughs> thinking about the the body and metamorphosis um i really loved how it's not just the body turning into other things but it's the body itself kind of the reader is kind of destabilized all the time by the expectations of what we think a body should do or be like there's a line where you talk about a shoal of tongues or there's lots of things about people kind of unpeeling their skin and I feel like yes. there's this real dislocation between your narrator or between all of your characters and their bodies that felt really yes. at the heart of it for me and I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit more I mean this is um a very real experience. I mean, you know, when I was going back and thinking about all my friends, all my mates, all the butchers and dykes, what what did we talk about and how did we live? And we were about the body. So a lot of us have been abused in some way or another. No more than straight people have been. It didn't make us gay, just to clear that one up. But, you know, we had gone through, uh, many of us, very as women, um, very difficult childhoods. And sometimes that difficulty was just when we hit puberty and started to look, you know, a little bit more fella face, a little bit more different to everyone else, and we started to develop sexuality, and that was such a load of shame. So when you come together, you go from this experience of being exiled, not only from your your school friends, but your own family. You have to make a choice between... That's what it was like. There weren't very many rainbow families or whatever. You know, it was, um, you, you were practically saying that you were a, a paedophile. If you came out, it was very closely associated with that in the 80s, early 80s. Um, so you're exiled from school friends, exiled from your family, and eventually from your town and, and from your own body. It's a site of shame. It's a site, something that brought you things that you weren't looking for. And then you come and you find this community and you're all exploring all of this stuff all at the same time, but you're young and good-looking and there's heavy trance music playing and there's drugs and leather and low-lighting and for the first time, you're handsome. First time in your life. And you still can't find your body, but what you do find is other women's bodies and you find each other on the dance floor and um, have this, you know... It, it, Humans have been doing it for thousands of years. It's a ritual where we come together in times of of grief and dance. Derek Jarman wrote, you know, about the AIDS epidemic, pandemic, that the world was ending and it was time to dance. So that's what we did. It's That's metamorphosis. Dancing is one of the things that saved him, the vitrines, you know, in aspect, because it, it's... There are layers and layers and layers of us. Kind of following on from that, I, I felt like your characters are always looking for something that belongs to them and it feels like their bodies don't belong to them, they don't have spaces on their, of their own, like their spaces are lost. And I was thinking about kind of what that says about the relationship between gender and sexuality and social class and kind of like if you're not at home within your own skin but also you don't have a place of your own, where does that leave you? Yeah, so I mean... A lot of this, this is all set, of course, in the 80s and 90s, late 80s, early 90s, that sort of decade period. Um, the first thing Kanto is, is a book about working class women. It's working class. The butch dive bars, or the dyke dive bars, were essentially working class spaces, and then there were other spaces for your lipstick lesbians and the 
<laughs> etc. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of kind of discussion around who we were. I remember calling myself the third person for a while. Um, we didn't have language like non-binary. It was very important to me and it remains important to me that I'm perceived as a woman because my entire fucking life I've been challenged, you know, and the fight of my generation. When we put Conto on, as a state, just as an aside, so there were four roles for butchers and two of the people who played um, uh, Jack Catch, I played Jack Catch, and Dozilly was played by Veronica uh, Fearon, who's an older stud. And we're from the same generation. And Angel and Valentine were played by youngers, both non-binary, transmasculine people. And we had this amazing conversation about a bridge between these two bits of language and the way we all perceive one another. And it was an amazing moment when we realised that we had different battles, but for the same thing. So the battle of the elder butch was to be seen as women. We're women. We're not like you, though. So it's very easy to say we're not women because we generally aren't like, you know, straight cis women. We don't look like it, we don't fit in in that kind of respect. But most of our conversation during that time was about being dykes. That was our gender. Butch dyke is a gender. It's a full-time job, we were exhausted. I wonder as well, like, um, in terms of language and that is a medium for you as a poet and maybe to have it on the page, your use of the glossary, there's like a, a need for the words and the meaning of them to have a precision. So, yeah, could you talk about your reason for having the glossary in that? I mean, it, it's the, it, precision is one way of looking at it, but it's also political, um, you know. Um, so, in a sense, the book was writing into this absence, this absence of the dyke story, the dyke, certainly the butch dyke story, and during a very active time for lesbians in the UK and across America, during a, a really the golden age of the gays, really. Everybody hated us, so we were amazing. You know, we had to, we came together and whilst we argued, we argued face to face and there's something, I think, qualitatively, something much more important about that. So, so it's political as much as anything because people know Polari, you know, and Polari language is spoken about a lot and there's a sort of subset which doesn't even have a name. It's just literally what we the language we use to describe one another. Um, and it, it's important because of how I'm often perceived um, that if people hear me say boy, that I'm not saying B-O-Y, I'm talking specifically. And when I, I gesture to myself as a boy, you know, as was, um, that they're, they're clear that I'm talking about dykes and not about, um, not about be, uh, being trans in that respect. It's not my story to tell. Mm. I wonder, connected to that, like having something that comes out of spoken interaction and community interaction amongst um, at the Butch Dyke community, how having that recorded as a written archive in your collection, how, how that, does that connect to, the, to this collection as a kind of archive as well? Absolutely. I think it's an important part of the documentation. What's really exciting to me is other projects that have come out of Kanto. So Roman Manfredi is doing this incredible exhibition, has gone around and photographed tons of working class black and white butchers across the UK. It's called We Us, and I think it's out in February. And that's it, partly, Roman um, photographs me for a lot of the 
publicity work I do, and that's kind of our connection. So the the sense of archiving is always on all of our minds, certainly artists. There's an incredible collection at the Bishopsgate Institute for LGBT people. Um, and what's really encouraging to me is so many people I know are archiving their work and they're not famous people. It's not that they're any in respect like that. They might not even have written a book, but it's about archiving our lives in some way. And 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 starting a conversation an archive is 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 just a, it's not it's not a dead place it's part of a conversation you know i think um linked to that there's you open the preface by saying um this is a book of silences mm. um and there's another line that struck me as connected with that at some point within the book where you say um the silence of someone waiting to speak is how you describe mm. a particular kind of silence and I was wondering, kind of, what's the relationship between language and silence, or archives and silence, within your work generally? A great question. Um, I think so. I started to write to break silence. Much of my work has been about breaking a silence, which obviously relates to sexual abuse, but also to, you know, early shame around being um, bent as a nine bob note, all that kind of stuff. Um, and feel knowing what it did to me, and I was very, very, very depressed um, as a child and as a teenager and early adult. And so I felt that one of the most powerful things a human being can do is to speak, to speak their story, and and great spaces to do that are stages. It's terrifying, but that focuses the mind. The great spaces to do it because they're very protected spaces. Um, no one will interrupt you, really. You just have your three minutes or whatever your poem is. Um, And you get to speak and then you get to have a kind of conversation afterwards. So a lot of it has been about breaking silence. And silence has inhabited me. You know, I live a very frenetic and heavy life. But at the same time, um, there's so much to say, isn't there? And I really feel it when I'm touring this book, Kanto, the butchers that come to me. It's always different. You know, you do a book signing, but then somebody moves away and there's an old grizzled butch standing there. And and then I, we always hug. We always have a hug up because it's because we have an, a, an unspoken moment. There is a lot of silence between us, um, which is a pure space and a space that we don't need to necessarily... You know, um, we don't need to necessarily dust. Let's let let's let it settle, that silence. So I think, you know, one of the great questions in all art is how much to say or draw, or to show, or dance, and how much do we allow other people to fill it in? And I think that's probably the greatest skill, isn't it? Trust, trusting, the person who consumes your work, to to finish the story well. Mm. With In terms of the collection and having something, the permanence, I guess, of having a collection and, and things written down in that way, which we've spoken about in relation to archive, do you find that as a, you know, coming from spoken word background where, as you say, the air changes what the words do, do you find that tension challenging sometimes or is it a creative um, well I, I think I find it quite a creative challenge I mean yeah. I don't want to be limited in any media and I don't want anyone else to be stories have to find their shape poetry becomes 
like water becomes the shape of the vessel that holds it. So it's it's not only that if it's put into a vessel and becomes that shape, it searches for its right vessel. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's very, very important. Um, we do that. At the same time, I I don't invest in the book in that way. So when I you see me doing a show from it, I change the words according to what what's easier or most effective to say. I mean, it's only slight kind of stuff, but obviously whenever you do a reading or a performance, you're curating from your written material, so I'll take the things um, that tell the story the best. If I've got an hour on stage, then I know I've got to tell the story. I've got my links I can use as well, you know, the actual story I'm physically telling. Um, but then I'm thinking about tempo and and tone of voice and how we end as well all the way through. So it has to kind of reach a peak for me in a kind of traditional gig sort of way. Um, so, no, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I love having stuff published, you know. I'm, I'm very pleased earlier work hasn't been. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but you know, it's a, it's a part of freedom. And a spoken word artist, what we learn is that by any means necessary. That's that's our as our mantra, you know. And um, people believe you when you're holding a book. In terms of the way you use images, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the real and the surreal, because I I feel like that's how your images work, right? You have something that's very much grounded in the real world, and then suddenly the sentence will shift, and something very surreal is happening. Um, so kind of like a note I've got is a rind of a skirt and blouse. It's like this defamiliarisation kind of thing that's going on. Yeah, I think of it as so social surrealism. Ooh. So you start <laughs> with a real issue and then um, stretch it, stretch it. And also it's kind of an associative poetry as well. So rind of a skirt, what do you get rind on? You get it on bacon or meat of some kind. So we're making a, a, a very quick association, three words between women as a sort of commodity, market, flesh, meat. So Rind of Skirt does that. But social surrealism, like, it can start like this. For example, let's just say we were talking about somebody with an eating disorder, uh, bulimic, something like that. So you maybe have a scene where they're bending over the toilet and they're, you know, um, they're vomiting, they're letting go or about to. Well, then something comes out the toilet. You know, something happens, rises out of that rather than... I know that sounds quite like like a horror story, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily have to be something horrific. It can be, you know, and particularly in writing, it can be something very magical. There's a real freedom in... A freedom in poetry and a freedom in fiction writing once we establish the logic of the world. You know, and if the logic of our world is that one thing is another thing... It's quantum physics as well. It's pure science, darling. <laughs> I was just going to say, I feel you, like you get that balance just right between... So you're using surreal imagery, but it doesn't suddenly feel like, oh, now we're in magic realism. It The, the edge of... Like, you, you tread the edge so carefully that it, it makes us look at the real world differently rather than escaping into a fantasy world, if you know what I right. mean. Right. Perfect, perfect. I mean... I mean, I think that's, that's the kind of aim. But, you know, it's good to use imagination in poetry, isn't it? I think part of the aim of Kanto was because I, was, I, I wanted to write 
something that made people want to turn over and find out what happened. You know, the idea of a narrative in a book, but not so much so that it's a verse poem, but, you know, that there's some sense of mystery or something to be solved within the book. Um, but, you know, part of that is having to kind of dodge around between imagination and reality. And and sometimes as a writer, you disappear into how something makes you feel rather than what it was. I've written about a couple of very difficult things in that book particularly the death of Kaz, who um, becomes Angel in, in the stage play, just to make it clearer. Um, particularly her death was, was very difficult now. You know, she died in 1999. And it's the first time I've successfully been able to write about that experience, but only through using stage directions. So that we're, we're seeing it happen rather than what happened or, you know, any... any um, in fact... In terms of surreality, that's the most surreal moment where where um, Kaz, who's called Peter in the story, the little kind of stage directions, having her head shaved and then it turns into a jungle and a lion eats her. All of which is totally true. She had a brain hemorrhage. But the idea, you know, it's like sometimes when you cannot say the thing, when it's too difficult to say the value of imagination, I think, not only saves the writer, but saves the reader and, you know, allows you to fill in the story yourself. Is it as well that kind of um, surrealism or metamorphosis, a way of capturing the enormity of, of something, of grief, which isn't captured by everyday language, if you like? Is there something in that, with, the, with what you're saying there in that example, you know? Yeah, I, there is. There is. A, I mean, obviously, we all know about the stages of grief, but long-term grief, where a grief lasts maybe thirty years longer, is um, it goes through many changes, and one of which is quite magical. It's a very warm feeling. It's the feeling of being protected, and you know, it's I guess another word for it, I suppose, would be nostalgia. But it's it's heavy. It's different. It's a different quality. But that's why all the snow is happening within. Within, well, it's a snow globe. It's by the way, the whole bar is set in a snow globe rather than, you know, a fish tank or something. It's because um, the first, um, my girlfriend's brother was a gay man, and he um, acquired full blown AIDS and died, and he was kind of looked after at a place called the Lighthouse that I talk about in Kanto as well, and at his funeral he'd left me a snow globe. So I associate snow, in fact, it's not even snow, it's gold glitter. I associate a silvery, goldy glitter with grief, you know, and with with, um, ghosts and magic, because there's something very magical about about these, these, you know, these characters. They are, you know, extraordinary women. Within that, I wonder how you feel about the idea of these poems being that that those kind of moments in the collection of the ritual of the poem being around a ritual of grief is that something that you connect with yeah i mean i've tried to i think for me the the biggest ritual of grief is when i do the set of seven cantos conto itself because the final the final part of that is um is very angry and there's several points during it in the that I can really shout and I can really let it out. 
And it's adapted because a couple more more of my friends have died. Butch women have died alone. Um, you know, um, since since I wrote it, so I did a version at Edinburgh Push the Boat Out Festival. Whereas when you say something that's very upsetting a lot, it it can be very difficult to retain authenticity. You know, you just become good at acting, and of course, where poetry is concerned, um, performance isn't acting; it's remembering. So to enable me to kind of really key into that ritual, I've started saying their names and that triggers something, you know, that starts a, a real feeling. And then I can feel the ghosts gathering, I can feel it sort of happening again. Um, but yeah, it feels like it is, it's really interesting you refer to them in that way because it does feel like almost a, the writing of each one was a, was a laying to rest of some kind as well as a kind of, circling round a gravestone in a weird sort of way. So I was wondering if, would you be up for a reading to finish? Yeah, sure. sure. And just to say thanks so much, it's been an amazing chat and we're really honoured to have you here. I'm absolutely blown away by your questions, thank you. So I'm going to read Psalm and it's toward the beginning of the O'Maryville section. So it's really the intro to all of, imagine yourself walking into the bar. O Maryville, song of loose shirt, you button down, boy, you. Thick rod of irony, O Maryville, you sawn off mini skirt, you. Tights torn into choir, O Maryville, O swagger, O keychain and denim. I am plural, O Maryville. We dress as our greatest fears, we. Dress as ourselves, O Maryville, the etymology of dyke. So many holes to fill, I knew your mother. Saw them, lower her body, into her body. Saw how she became cenotaph, the neighbourhood children left. Flowers at, O Maryville, I remember your sister, how antelope she was how she froze when she heard the first roar how she fell into the o of the roar o maryville the antelopes are eating the antelopes oh my maryville forgive us their trespasses let us walk alone at night and let the night not follow us let us drink too much and a weak waken in each other's mouths. Let us be ugly, let us unwash, let us language. Our mouths are filled with men, lying, dancing. Let us pass the half-smoked cigarette. Let us fatten, let us leave our faces on the back seat of night buses. Let someone take a photograph, not of us, but because of us, let our limbs grow wild, our hair retreat, our hormonal seas. Let our breasts, let them. Let us inherit each other's teeth. Oh, Maryville, keep us alive. This death, keep us from prayer. Deliver us from ego. For thine are the body, the burning and the birthing forever and ever. Are you a man? If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 
You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.